my name is Akria Jamfi, and I am the founder of the British Blacklist. And I'm joined by two wonderful women who are complementing my journey through this media space that I'm existing in. And it's quite wonderful. But I want you guys to introduce yourself with your chests. Who are you? <laughs> Thank you for this. Uh, my name is Cheryl L. Bedford. I am the founder of Women of Color Unite. We're the largest nonprofit of women of color in entertainment. Uh, creator of the JTC list is named after my mother, Joan Teresa Curtis, who was an activist and statistician. That is the accompanying database of women of color above and below the line. We're almost at 4,000. Good God. I'm also a producer and line producer by trade. Most people know me from the movie Dark Girls, the documentary. I was Bill Duke's producer for years. I'm also an educator. I taught at the New York Film Academy. I was the very first chair of diversity development. I also taught the art of line producing at UCLA Extension. And I am the co-founder of Hashtag Start With Eight, the largest diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility program ever developed in Hollywood. We've done two rounds in Hollywood, one round in Canada, and gotten over 1,000 women of color mentors in the industry. So people have to do one substantive thing for eight women of color, hence the name hashtag start with eight, co-founded with Tote Nguyen. I'm African-American. She is Vietnamese American. And that is what I do all day long. I just put my foot up Hollywood's ass. That's an intro, Murray. I, I'll be scared to follow, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, shit. <laughs> well, yes, I am Murray Peters. I'm an actor, writer, currently living in Toronto in Canada over the summer, just paying attention to what all the work that Cheryl has been doing. And I just found that very inspiring. And I saw that there wasn't anything remotely similar happening in Canada. I mean, on my end, it kind of just started with me, like we sort of had this uh, Facebook group with a lot of writers, Canadian based writers in it, um, some international as well. But anyways, I kind of posted on the group and was like, oh, is anybody doing anything like that? And then everything just snowballed from there and it was like well I guess I'm doing it <laughs> thank you very much tough act to follow Cheryl but I mean you've been doing this I think along our journey of us meeting because I can't remember how we were introduced someone said we should talk and we had that conversation just about being in the industry being black women in this industry and the platform that you launched is similar to what I'm trying to launch as well and just speaking to you is like a deep vessel of knowledge and experience but where was your entry point into this space as a creative and when did it knock you for six and like ah something's not right my mother's youngest sister Mont mary who's a very well-known journalist her name is mary c curtis she went to fordham university and i'm originally from baltimore and my mother took me to see a little night music on broadway I watched Glennis Johns sing, Send in the Clowns. And I turned to my mother and I said, that's what I want to do. And what I meant at eight was I wanted to make people through the arts feel the way that I felt in that moment. So I started NYU when I was 17. So I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from NYU Film School, and I have a Master of Fine Arts degree from the American Film Institute. So the interesting thing is that when I went to NYU, it was the number one film school in the country. When I went to the American Film Institute, 
it was the number one film school in the country. When I graduated from the American Film Institute in 1993, there were less than 200 people in the entire world with a master's degree from the American Film Institute, let alone had already gone to one of the top five film schools in the country. So I'm thinking, I'm a graduate, I had won awards, like, uh-huh. And I went to get a job and everybody started throwing those diversity forms at me. Back in the day before they were online, you had to fill them out in person, do it in triplicate. And I read it and I was like, oh, you want me to jump through some motherfucking hoops? Oh, by the way, I curse a lot. Uh, you want me to jump through some motherfucking hoops that you don't want some white people to jump through? That was coupled with something else that happened. A friend of mine took me to one of those industry parties. At the time I was still at the American Film Institute. So this actually came first and was a friend of mine. He was like, yeah, tickets are $50. Now back in the day in the early 90s, $50 would give me two weeks worth of groceries at the 99 cent store. And I was like, I'm paying $50. He's like, no, 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 I'll pay for you. We went, two of the only black people in the entire space. And I watched people networking and giving out their cards and I didn't have any cards at the time and giving out their cards and all of that. And I was like, oh, Knowing that a lot of times the barrier to this, these kinds of spaces was financial. And so that coupled with when I graduated, I was like, if I ever, ever get the chance, I'm going to change some shit. Now, also having grown up with a mother who was an activist and a statistician, my mother said to me, Cheryl, you don't know what's in the hearts and minds of white people don't even try. She said, but what you can do is break things down to the lowest common denominator. And what that lets them know is you know. And that's what I do. Everything we do is based on statistics. I'm not getting into, well, I feel that we're doing the right thing and we're trying to do the right. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're not. Because statistically, it proves you're not. The other reason that for the most part, I don't fuck with most groups that are in Hollywood is because they've been around 30, 40 years. And what I'm really talking about, a lot, lot of white female-led groups. While they've been around all of this time, we've had Me Too and Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate and all of this. This shit happened on their watch. So why are we going to continue to fund them, act like they're doing some shit, when they have actually been part of the problem, not part of the solution? And those are the only two choices you have. Murray, what was your entry point into this industry? And likewise, what was your realization that, yeah, things aren't going the way or don't look like they go the way that they should for someone who wants to get into this career? I started in this industry as an actor and I've just kind of transitioned into writing over the last couple of years. And the realization of when this industry wasn't built for me was also to realize, well, simultaneous, I guess, with the realization that to some extent this world wasn't built for me and understanding that sort of from a young age. But I guess the real shift was going from, okay, this is the way the world is and just figuring out how to kind of assimilate to that and keep walking through that to a point now where it's like, no, fuck that shit. I ain't got time for this, you know? And as much as people are like, oh, well, life isn't fair. Well, it should be, and it could be. And you're from Canada? I am, yes. Because, I mean, maybe from the UK, everything's projected into Hollywood, into America. We have a British Black culture for sure, but to package it, commercialize it, and present it on screen, on stage, in the arts, we've had hella doors closed in our faces and the glass ceiling is so low. So it's been hard to 
bring our culture to the forefront. So we sucked up everything from African-American, Black American culture. But Canada didn't register in our space. What was it like for you? What's the arts world like for, what are the prospects? What's it like in Canada, that lay of the land telling a Canadian Black story? I mean, I guess in some ways it's fairly similar. I mean, especially I think with our proximity to the U.S. I think in general, Canada tends to adopt a lot of U.S. culture. Even when I speak to my fellow creatives in terms of like, oh, well, what is like an authentic Canadian story? I'm like, I don't know. It's like, ask me, what is Canadian food? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all I can know for sure is just my experience, which is not necessarily something that I've seen a lot of on television. And so there's always that sense of being an anomaly. I guess, for lack of a better word, not just being an anomaly, but also striving to be part of or achieve something that realistically I can never really achieve or be part of. I understand that. And so with mum being an activist and instilling something in you that you grew up around and feeling, you've been unapologetic about telling the truth and holding people to account. I'm attributing that to mum, but where else did that come from? Like, why are you unafraid to speak up? It's my entire family. So my Uncle Thomas is a retired judge in Baltimore, Maryland. He helped to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. His youngest son, my cousin, is disabled. Where does it come from? I would say, actually, it started with my grandparents because my mom, she had two older brothers, two younger sisters. The two youngest, Janice and Mary, were a little too young to be involved in the civil rights movement, right? So it was really my Uncle Thomas, my Uncle Tony, and my mom. And my grandparents would let their house be used for a lot of the young activists. My Uncle Tony and my Uncle Thomas were arrested, and my grandparents put up their house. These are the stories that I grew up with. During the March on Washington, my Uncle Thomas helped run the communications tent. My mother was in the sign tent. So you think of all the people who came to the March on Washington, she was in the sign tent. They didn't bring their own sign. She was in the sign tent making signs. And my <laughs> uncle Tony owned his own car and in his GTO, he was running errands. And I grew up with these stories. I grew up with stories of basically people being unapologetically black. That's what we call it now. My mother was probably the most logical person I've ever met in my entire life. And she could break things down so easily, like she saw through all the bullshit. So for instance, my mother would tell me, so Cheryl, you know those Black people who actually buy into white supremacy? She's like, in this house, we forgive them because we know how insidious it is. She said, no, it doesn't mean you want to fuck with them. But in this house, we forgive them. Uh, so people in, in uh, especially Baltimore and Maryland would know Pennsylvania Avenue, right? Kind of a rough neighborhood. But my mother went into this thing one day where we had been driving somewhere and we had to go down Pennsylvania Avenue. And when we got home, my mother said to me, did you see all these guys like on the street trying to sell their wares, sell CD records back in the day, uh, you know, jewelry and everything. And my mother went into this thing where she's like, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Let me tell you what I have right here. She went into this whole thing. And when she was done, she said, understand the privilege that you have. Yours is education. Because those guys on the street corner, if they had had a shot, if it hadn't been for Vietnam and so many coming back the way that they did, addicted to drugs, PTSD, she said they would be CEOs and CFOs. So what my mother did, and I've gone to private school all my life, but what my mother did was made me realize one thing. I was not special. I just had family who believed in me, education, all of those things, right? 
but never mistake that for being special. So I've always been very rooted to all Black people. And what this industry has a habit of doing is picking and choosing, deeming somebody worthy. Now, if you look statistically at the people that, they're deem, that they deem worthy, they tend to be white adjacent, very, very light, thin, no disabilities, things like that. Some buy into it, some don't. Some use that privilege to help other people. For those that buy into it, I get it. Because white suprem- what white supremacy does is it dangles this little carrot, and it is a little carrot. And it says, if you put us first, meaning white people, if you put us first, you may get the corner office, you may make the six or seven figures, you may get the promotion. Here's the flip side of that. If you don't, you will get punished for it. You won't get the promotion, microaggressions, macroaggressions, not the people in those positions don't get those, but it's much, much worse. You could be killed for it Mm. by not putting us first. So I I understand that. And I watched it happen when the verdict for Derek Chauvin, and I was actually on Clubhouse in the room with some Black people. And what I kept hearing was, I'm so glad about, no, no, I mean, I love my people, but no, 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 I love you too. But no, 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 I love white people too. Here's the thing, I love my people. I do not expect Asian people, South Asian people, Latinx people, I do not expect you to put us first. I expect you to put your people first, but Black people specifically are expected to put white people first. Why is that? That table that everybody wants us to have a seat at was literally built on the backs of enslaved Africans on the land of the indigenous. Fuck your system. Fuck that table. I'm off my corner building my own table. And if I ever invite you, you best step up or step off. I don't want to be at a table that was built on the backs of my ancestors. Mm. Murray, what makes you say fuck your table? What's your motivation and strength? Um, Because I I mean, I'm unapologetically black, but I don't think I've been challenged in a way to be as forthright, but I am. And this is what's got me through by just like, this isn't me, you gotta take me as I am. I'm black, black, everywhere is black. But um, it's a it's a it's a challenge to keep going. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that I've been thinking a lot about, especially I would say over the last couple of days. Especially when you're sort of more close to the beginning of your career, there's always that fear of reprisal. I think, and there's a part of me that definitely has that, and I think there's also the part of me that acknowledges that it's okay to have that. But like, we're at a point where things can't go back to the way that they have been. And, you know, it, it's that old saying of like insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And so it's like, we can't keep doing things the way that they've always been done. It's time to say, fuck you, fuck that and push forward. You know, every time I hear that little voice in my head of like, oh, but you speak up, they're gonna say that you're difficult. You speak up, they're not gonna hire you. They're not gonna this, they're not gonna that. And I'm like, fuck it, they're not doing that shit anyway. At I- least I'll be on the other side saying my truth when you are truthful, people might find it a bit sticky, but I think Cheryl, you said something when we spoke before we got into, you know, start with eight and everything. And you were like, yeah, some of them push back, don't like me, but then slowly but surely they all come back around and they come back to me because there's a truth there. And I think, you know, the UK racism is so subtle. However, in America, we kind of look at it and say like, it's in your face. You kind of get that America in general, how we look at it, that you know what you're getting 
to some extent. Um, so when you launched Start With Eight, what was your point? What was the point of it all? Tote tagged me on Twitter. I woke up and it exploded. And she's a screenwriter. I'm a producer, right? I had built an entire department when I was in New York Film Academy, having been their very first chair of diversity development. So I knew how to turn it into a program. Right. Uh, I'll shout out to Shelby, but especially Mananda Reaper, who came up with the forms like and the handbook and all of that. Like she's such a badass. But it, it had aligned with everything that we had done. So very early on, we realized that the only thing that actually worked as far as moving the needle forward was to get those that could hire, fund and distribute in the same room. So people ask why we have so much success as far as getting people hired off the JTC list. And that was because we, for two years, had events. Let's do the timeline. So you had WOC, JTC list. No, JTC list. Let, let me backtrack. So yeah. what happened was in February of 2018, I just threw an event. I used my uh, tax return. And I threw an event where I just wanted to get all the women of color that I knew in the same room. They could invite other women of color. 50 became 75, 150 showed up. And we had already decided that we would just start a database. Back then it was on a Google Doc. That went over so well, everybody convinced me to do another one. That time I invited allies. And that was May of 2018. Something happened and I watched people starting getting hired. I was like, oh, I get it. Database are like phone books to white folk because our industry is so driven by relationships. So for the next two years, we had meet and greets, meet and greets with studios, events that we threw, because that was the thing that we realized. You have to get those that can hire, fund, and distribute in the same room. Because what had happened is that through all of these diversity programs, which I am not a fan of, is that they had otherized people. When you otherize them, you dehumanize them. And all of a sudden, I started watching all of these people, like the look, you could actually see the looks on their face change, where they were like, oh, you just want the same thing I do. You're no different from me. Now, I will tell you at our events, I fed them really well because I'm a black woman and I got them drunk. But in doing that, people relaxed and, and that is why we had so much success. So interestingly, the women as they get hired, because it's just the name, the, you know, your IMDB link, your resume, so forth and so on. And yes, you have your socials, but that's the last thing that they see if they really care what you look like, right? And Interestingly enough, dark-skinned women get hired, fat women get hired, women with disabilities get hired. Hmm. Also, ours is not a searchable database. And what I mean by that is you have to request it. And the reason you have to request it is because I'm keeping track. So if a studio says, we can't find any, Cheryl's like, yes, you can, because I sent it to this department on this day, this department. What do you mean you can't find any? Also, we moved from a Google Doc because we got, became so large that now it's on Airtable. So it's filterable. So people, it doesn't matter. They're like it's 4,000 people. Okay. So they go and they put in Union First AD. It pops up. It auto filters. And so people are constantly hired off the list. And that intersectionality, I will say that it was very, very important to me 
when we were launching Hashtag Start With Eight and bringing Murray into the fold for Canada and then having the UK, that it was dark-skinned women. That was very, very important to me because it had to be an intersectionality, right? And if you read the studies, and I don't care whether it's the UK where dark-skinned women are dying at three times the rate of your light skin or biracial counterparts in childbirth, or whether you read the uh, studies from the National Institute of Health regarding the depression rate in dark-skinned women because of the way that they are treated within society. It was very important to me that this face be our faces, right? It was very important to me. And even Tope and I talk about with everything that's happening with Stop Asian Hate, she's Vietnamese American. So she has had people push back who were of Chinese descent, Japanese descent, Korean descent, what she calls city Asians versus jungle Asians and the way that even the Asian community has handled their internalized racism, right? And I just let Tokyo, I was like, those are your people. I let you handle that. All of that was very important to both of us as we started launching more and more around the world, because I think it's very important that people see us as the forefront, also as the leaders we have always been. Black women and dark-skinned women have always been at the forefront of various movements, and that was very important to me. Murray, why did you say, okay, Cheryl, I'm, I'm on board with your vision. I'm going to start with a Canada. Because the, the work is necessary, hmm. and nobody's doing it. That's simple. Was why did you say yes? Why did I say yes? I yeah, said- let's ask you. Because because I can't say no to Cheryl with all this. <laughs> what the hell? Because it's the same thing over here. I mean, there are a lot of initiatives. It is generally because of your passion and your de- determination to get things done and your unapologeticness. For me, it was, okay, why not? And if, I, if it doesn't work with me, then you choose someone else. But I know that I'm going to follow someone that's doing something because I think taking action and making a change is all I'm about. Like I started the British Blacklist just because I felt like something's not right. And so let me do it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I'm going to do it because I don't, I think all noise is good. We need the Twitter warriors. We need the people that just sit there and complain and moan in their groups. All the noise, whether it's a complaint to action, is all necessary for us that do take the lead and get step into the forefront to move movements forward because we've got the groundswell of people behind us. And yeah, and I was jumping on your train for sure. And the UK has hides behind things. The conversation that happens is that we want to help. We don't know where to help. We don't know who to help. So when we have the allies that actually genuinely want to do something, but they can't find an initiative for the trees because it's all so many, where does this initiative lead to? Who's running it? What's the underlying agenda? Is it actually going to make a difference? That's where I'm like, okay, if something like Start With Eight has a beginning, middle and end, and it has had is it three years of it um, existing and running well. This is what we need for the UK and for the genuine allies in the UK that really want to make a difference and lend their expertise to helping women of colour get further ahead. This is the thing to do. It's all only initiatives that take action and deal with action. The funniest thing is we've done three rounds, but it's less than a year. And this is what I say. Okay, so I have these conversations with studios, especially DEI at studios, and I'm like, I want your money. And they're like, what? I was like, you haven't done jack shit. I can't get anybody to donate, fund this program, because it really is a middle finger to everything Hollywood has ever said about the gatekeeping and the jumping through the hoops and the vetting and the, 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 all of the things that they make us go through, right? 
And it's very important for people to understand that the more marginalized you are, the more perfect people expect you to be. So somebody is black, somebody is dark-skinned, somebody who's black, dark-skinned woman, somebody's black, dark-skinned fat, black, dark-skinned fat, disabled. Like the, the people expect you to be perfect. And that's not how we work. We work on sign-ups. First come, first serve. That's about it. These forms that you fill out are easy peasy. It's nothing like no trauma essays or anything like that. It's just like, what is it that you need to further your career? And we get mentors who fill out the forms. You have to do one substantive thing for eight women of color. What is that? And then we just match them. Like it, it's really that easy. And it's really funny because when I talk to studios and so forth and so on, they have all of these diversity programs. I'm mm -hmm. like, first of all, we all know that this idea of meritocracy is bullshit. But if that is what you're going to say, then I get all your money. The reason I get all your money is because in less than a year, we've gotten a thousand women of color mentors in the entertainment industry. People have gotten hired, their projects funded, their content distributed. Like you don't have that rate because here's what you didn't count on, the sweat equity of women of color. Just to circle back to it being women of color and not just black women, what was your thing? Is it because you connected with Tope so it was when you had to do that or? So when we created the JTC list, it was always gonna be women of color. Remember that event that I threw? The JTC list came first. When we decided to turn into a nonprofit, that very first invitation said women of color, dot, 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 unite in all caps. So when we started, we were majority black because I'm black. But here's the thing, and I think other women of color realize this, that what you do for the least of us, you do for everybody else. Also, black women, like we sauce. Like we're like, yeah, are you actually gonna do something? And I do credit dark girls because that made people know that I was willing to have those hard conversations. And then we started partnering with other people and other groups came in and so forth and so on. But I think that Women of Color Unite would specifically have to be run by a Black woman. And people are like, well, well why do you say that? Because you can't do deal with anti-Latinx or anti-Asian or anti-anything else hate because it all goes back to anti-blackness, yeah, right? So that's why in a lot of movements, you find black women at the forefront because if Asians had not benefited from anti-blackness, we wouldn't have things like the model minority and so forth and so on, right? Latinx, 25% of Latinx are Afro-Latinx, but we wouldn't know that if you didn't look. So in dealing with all of these, it all comes back to anti-Blackness, mm. right? Everybody, this in the U.S., everybody benefits. If you are not Black, every other POC benefits. They have been indoctrinated into anti-Blackness, which is why, why in the U.S., it's B-I-P-O-C. We had to pull out Black and Indigenous. Why? Because our entire economic system is what? Built on the backs of enslaved Africans on the land of the Indigenous, which is why now we say BIPOC. We do not put Black people or Indigenous people in people of color. Because in the United States, we're not all people of color when other people of color have benefited from anti-Blackness and still live on the land of the indigenous.
That's um, interesting that you've reclaimed that because I will say reclaim it because in the UK, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, Murray, that we are rejecting BAME because we have black and minority ethnic. So I hate it because my minority ethnic pisses me off because globally ethnics are not the minority if you're talking about people of colour, right? But ethnic also applies to white folks if you really dissect it, but they never apply that word to them. So um, yeah, we reject, we're trying to reject that acronym, but and I saw some people rejecting BIPOC in the conversation, but then the way you said it makes perfect sense in the reason why it can it can work without it being just lumping us all together. If you understand the grouping, uh, Murray, do you have the same kind of issue in Canada? Yeah, it's definitely a conversation that we've been having here as well. I know recently there are some groups that are moving, trying to move away from BIPOC. I think exactly for the reasons you stated that it does become, that it's now starting to become a bit of a lumping together. And I think the use of the phrase to me is sort of context dependence. Cause like if I'm in a conversation with like you ladies, we understand what that means. We can throw that, we can, you know what I mean? Like we can use the phrase BIPOC and understand that we're talking about black indigenous people of color. Whereas in other settings, it's just a bit of a catch all sometimes. The other phrase that has been tossed around, around around here has been racialized people, which personally I don't like. Ooh. Just that's because I'm odd. like that's odd. That's like you've been yeah. you've got disease. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, like my whole thing with that though is that I'm like, I'm not inherently racialized. You racialized me. That part. That part. I, I agree with that. I, no, I, I couldn't roll with that. Well, and look, when I talk, by, yeah, when I talk BIPOC, I explain it to people yeah. so they mm -hmm. understand that that is the order. It is Black, Indigenous, people of color, right? It is not. It, it is not B I P O C I B, right? Like it, there's a specific reason for it and the specific order for it. Black comes first, right? Then let's face it, and look, I don't care whether you're talking about Canada, the UK, or the United States. The fact is all of our economic systems are based on raping and pillaging Africa. To be honest. Right, like, I, I, who has natural diamonds? Who has all of these natural resources, right? It's, it's colonization. It is, it is the raping and pillaging of other countries just because you have some guns, right? So, um, you know, I understand that. I know in the UK, because I've seen it on like Twitter and stuff like that, where people are like, you know, those crown jewels, you should give back to Africa. You it should give them back. I mean, that's the that's conversation. That is the conversation. There's a lot of things that need to be returned so we can, I don't even know, be reconnected to what keeps us going. You know, the disconnect is real for all of us. Even those who have like, I have, I'm, my parents are Ghanaian. I can go to Ghana and I can touch my ancestors, actually know that this is my land without diversion, but I'm still disconnected from a land, not by my choice, you know? So those yeah, yeah. And that's, that is something that I can't do. Mm. I mean, I probably could if I took one of those, you know, DNA tests and all of that. Sometimes you can't trust those, but then that's another conversation. Yeah, that's another story, but I, I, but I can't. Mm. Um, and it's not that I don't want to, what I want to reclaim first is all the contribution my ancestors made to this country. I'll get to Africa like eventually, like I'll do the test and see where I come from. But first, I want to claim, I want reparations. 
I'll give you a perfect for instance, like the stereotype of watermelon. Black people like them watermelon, all of that. A lot of people don't even understand where it comes from. And it comes from the fact that after slavery, remember, slaves were really good farmers. And they started selling watermelons on the side of the road and making a really good living at it. And it was an actual campaign because they didn't want us to have anything. People are like, well, you know, we as Black Americans, we just need to get together and pull our economic system money together and keep it in our community. That sounds great. But first, we have to undo the fact that we tried that. They burned down Tulsa. They burned down Rose. They burned it all down. And how do you take all of that trauma that actually lives in our DNA? Like, it's scary. For people when we're like, keep the black dollars in the black community. I agree with that. But I also understand why it is so hard for people to do. That trauma lives in our DNA. So every time we say something like that, trust me, within a whole lot of black Americans, there's something where our DNA goes, like, wait, what? Right? Because again, when you put yourself first, what is what does white supremacy say? You will get punished for it. Yeah. You could even die for it. And our ancestors did, and not that long ago. So we have to put it all really within context. Context is everything. So when I talk about things like reparations and things like that, I'm talking about the, the school system where in the US, 80 plus percent of the teachers are white, 90 plus percent of the principals are white. On um, books that were actually written by the Daughters of the Confederacy, you ever wondered why we are that much in history books? All of that needs to be dismantled. You do know that even wealthy black areas don't even have a lot of the resources that poor white schools have. All of that, people don't realize that a lot of the gerrymandering that they did in redrawing of lines was once they sucked our community dry and built their white, more predominantly white schools, then gerrymandered us and redrew the district lines. Our economic dollars built those schools and then redrew those district lines to keep us caged. I wish we had more time to go into all of these things because it applies to the UK too. I'm sure it applies to Canada too. It's the same thing in different positionings and the government spins it in different ways in our respective countries. For Start With Eight, going forward, I mean, let's get some dates, let's get some timelines. When is everything happening? How can people get involved? And why should they get involved? Obviously, we have Hollywood, we have, well, really USA, but we call it Start With Eight Hollywood, Start With Eight Canada, and Start With Eight UK. I started sending out the mentor forms, not the mentees, all the mentees, wait a minute, but the mentor forms to various people in the UK, the ones in the UK, US, and in Canada. Like, I just started sending out that link. Manon just texted me. I'm really excited that Meg Deloach signed on. So for those who don't know, Meg Deloach is a showrunner here in, in the US. She is sort of single-handedly responsible for something like out of the eight 
black women who have joined the DGA for multi-cam shows, like under her, she got six of them. Like it's ridiculous. And Meg wanted to do it last season, except it was COVID and so forth and so on. She really wanted people who could possibly like shadow her on set. So I'm so happy to have her because of everything that we're told. We don't think that there are other people out there doing the work. And there are so many other other people who've always been in their corner doing the work. And what I love about Start With Eight is that it brings us all together. So we just launched those forms. And then later on in this month, early July, we will open it up for the mentees to sign up. Just anybody who wants to be a mentee, yes, you do have to join Women of Color Unite. It is completely free. And we offer a whole bunch of other services. We're about to start a partnership with the Casting Society of America and private classes. And those classes are based on, wait for it, what women of color need. Because we sent out forms. So these are classes specifically tailored for the needs of women of color, performers in the entertainment industry. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that, but we do a lot of other things, but yeah. So you do have to join Women of Color Unite. And one of the reasons that we do that is so that we can statistically see how we're doing. Because the very first time we did it, we sent out a form to see how we did, right? Because it was something we kind of just went on a wing and we went, yeah, we think we can do this. And 76% of the women of color uh, said the thing that they got most out of it was hope, mm -hmm. hope. So when people ask me why I do what I do, that's why, hope. Because this industry has sucked the hope out of marginalized people. And I'm just here to give some of that back. Uh, when I die on my tombstone, all I want to say is she gave the world hope. And you definitely gave hope to me and Murray. I'm gonna speak for you, Murray, of course. Start With Eight UK is launching in June. Murray, when is Start With Eight Canada starting? Yeah, we're pretty much on the same timeline. So we've got work to do, but yeah, this is exciting. <laughs> um, I know I can get enough to handle 600 women here in, the, in Hollywood, right? Just because we've done it. So I know I can do it again. I just need those in Canada and the UK to step up because every woman gets two mentors. I'm just gonna say it just in case your ass is performative. Give them two. But every time for every person who stands up that is eight women of color, uh, you've just given hope. Just to end, where will you be in your happy place when it comes to the work that you're doing in trying to initiate change? Murray, what will be your version of happy place? It's interesting. I've never, <laughs> I can't really say that I've ever really thought about it in that such specific terms, but I guess it'll be when when we're no longer having these conversations of like, oh, was I not hired because I'm a woman? Was I not hired because I'm black? Was I not hired because this, because that? When it can really be about the work, same as the white men. To be honest. I want what they have. <laughs> and beyond. Um, Cheryl, when will you be in your happy place? My happy place is when those of us who are the most marginalized, when we begin to move the needle forward for that. Diana Romero is one of our Latinx members who's in a wheelchair. Uh, so I'm going to read her post and I hope that uh, those who can sign up for mentors take all of this from Diana Romero. Several years ago, I met Cheryl L. Bedford at a panel discussing disability in Hollywood. I had just transitioned into a wheelchair as MS took my mobility away in 2018. I didn't know what to do and where to go. 
Somehow I found out about the panel and my life changed. After many years of working in film production, I made the decision to turn to my dream of writing for TV and not leave Hollywood. Now fully immersed in disability advocacy in Hollywood, I have also made strides in my effort to become a TV writer. Fast forward to a few months ago, where I became one of the newest mentees of Hashtag Start With Aid Hollywood. One of my two amazing mentors connected me with a TV writer slash showrunner for a general. We chatted for quite some time. And next thing I knew, she was telling me that she was staffing a new show and would I be interested? Of course I was. So I sat down to meet with her and her co-show runner, which turned into an amazing meeting slash interview. Today, I started my new job as a writer's assistant for the new show, 4400. I'm living proof that hashtag start with eight Hollywood mentorship does work and essential to our careers, important for our souls and necessary for sisterhood. Without this, I wouldn't be where I am today. Thank you, Cheryl, for all you do. Thank you also to all those that work in this mentorship program. My heart is full and I promise I will make you all proud. That is why I do what I do. And to get involved with Start With Eight or find out more, you can go to www.startwith8hollywood.com where you'll be sent to all the portals that'll give you further information about how you can get involved as a mentee or a mentor. It's an important, important initiative and it's more than an initiative, it's a lifestyle, it's a way of being, and it's a way of pushing things forward and making, affecting change um, for the better. Um, thank you, Murray. Thank you, Cheryl. And thank you, everybody listening. Take care. Thank you, Akria. Thank you, Molly.